The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the weekend preview on the Athletic Football Podcast, sponsored by Bet365. I'm Dan Bardell with George Ellick and Bet365 Steve Freeth alongside me as ever to preview the best of the weekend's Premier League action. We're going to reflect on a dramatic North London derby and of course the weekend's FA Cup final. Steve, George, how are we both? Good, looking forward to a weekend of FA Cup finals, playoff semi-finals, good host of games on Sunday as well. So uh, it should be a, a good weekend's football as we kind of limp towards uh, the summer and, uh, and a bit of time off. Yeah, if I know you, you'll be more excited about the EFL games for sure. <laughs> Steve, I've got no. I've got you down as a, an FA Cup final man, getting up at eight o'clock, things like that, watching the whole be. day's coverage. If you're not in the box, of course. I uh, I used to be back in the day. It was a, a ritual when uh, we uh, no such thing as social media and things like that. It was just terrestrial channels, probably about three of them just uh, back then. And it was the whole day. Now I've been very fortunate to go to a number of uh, cup finals over over the 20 plus years that I've been at Bet365. Um, won't be there uh, this weekend, but I'll certainly be watching along with uh, all the all the playoff action. And it's my best mate's 50th as well. So, and you know him, Dan, he's a Villa fan. So I'll be spending the weekend with him, which I'm sure he'll talk about the European Cup, maybe a few times. It sounds like it sounds like it's real reversal for me and Steve. Well, I'm off to a game. I'm going to Kenilworth Road for Luton Huddersfield, and you're the one seeing his mates, having a few yeah. beers, and not watching uh, any football. I think I've got, so I've got to wait till uh... Thursday, George. I think for um, Port Vale Swindon. Oh, Port no. Vale Swindon. It's going to be a long few days. Goals. <laughs> I'm doing a bit of a Steve on Sunday as well. I'm in I'm in corporate for the Villa game on Sunday, so yeah, I'm turning Ooh. into Steve Freeth as well. Let's talk about the FA Cup final then, but before we do, don't forget you can sign up to The Athletic for just a pound per month for the first six months and sample the best sports writing in the business. You'll also get ad-free versions of all our podcasts. To take advantage of that offer, just head to theathletic.com slash footballpod. So yeah, game one we're going to look at this weekend is the FA Cup final. Chelsea v Liverpool, of course, a 4.45 kickoff on Saturday. Steve, this is a, a proper final, isn't it? Two teams in the Premier League's top three. I think you have to go back to 2007 for the last time that happened. And of course, a repeat from the Carabao Cup final as well, where there wasn't really any goals, but it was an exciting game. What a game it was. I remember us guys talking about it as it was just... For a nil-nil, I was looking back at the data, you know, uh, just the basic ones. Really. 16 shots in the first half, big chances missed. Mane, Salah, Pulisic. Mount had a couple as well. Offside goals, thrills and spills, penalty shootouts at the end. It was an incredible game, wasn't it? And I think we'll be hoping for more of the same this time around. Chelsea, of course, have lost the last two cup finals. They'll be you know, desperate to, get, uh, to go one better. And I don't know if you remember the final from 2012 where there was, was nearly 90,000 or whatever in, in attendance there and it was if you look at the Chelsea team compared to the Liverpool team then with like uh, Czech, Terry, Cole, Lampard, Drogba against the likes of Downing, Spearing, you know, Skirtle and Agar, Andy Carroll coming off the bench as well. It's, you know, the, the, the Chelsea would have been favourites that day and, uh, and Liverpool are, are going to be clear favourites for this one. Did Villa, George, give a little bit of a blueprint to Chelsea of, of what they should perhaps do against Liverpool? Because Villa have obviously got less quality than Chelsea, but they did cause Liverpool problems on Tuesday night with their high line. If they play perhaps Lukaku and Werner in tandem, they could perhaps get at Liverpool? It's difficult because there are two sides in my book who made it difficult for, for Liverpool recently in the Premier League. Uh, one was Everton, who dropped in incredibly deep and looked to spring them on the counter. Then you got Villa, who played a high line and looked to kind of take the game to them, and both worked. Um, it, you have to wonder if, if maybe that's just a sign that Liverpool at this stage of the season aren't necessarily playing as well, defensively at least, um, as they were previously. And you know, talking about blueprints for how... Chelsea should go about this game. You look at the recent record of Chelsea against Liverpool under Thomas Tuchel. In their last four games, uh, Chelsea won the first back in March 2021, 1-0. We've had the two draws, one all and two all in the league this season. And then the 0-0 the draw that turned into a penalty win for Liverpool in the Cup. So Jurgen Klopp's failed four, in four consecutive games in 90 minutes to beat Thomas Tuchel's Chelsea. So I think in a way he doesn't really need a blueprint. It feels to me like he's already a manager pretty adept at knowing what's needed to stop Liverpool's key players, uh, pretty adept at being able to, to create chances themselves as well. And that, for me, is is 
looking at kind of the betting here, Steve's absolutely right where Liverpool are heavy favourites to win this one. I think they're two on to lift the trophy and, and Chelsea are six to four. But when it comes down to cup games and individual one-off fixtures, to an extent, you know, the form book has to go out the window a little bit. We've got team news where we already know that Fabinho is going to be out for Liverpool and Jordan Henderson's going to be playing in that in that holding midfield role, which is absolutely not um, where he is best used at all. You know, obviously his, his ability on the ball and his energy is important there, but Fabinho's role in terms of breaking up play and being able to quickly recycle the ball is so important to the way that Liverpool play. It's hard not to see that as a, as a bit of a blow. So... I think there might be a little bit of complacency going into this game where, you know, you look at the league table, Liverpool are clearly the better side than Chelsea over the course of the season. Um, Chelsea's recent struggles have been well documented, but I just wonder if this is going to be a, a, a tighter encounter than, you know, than we maybe expect. And you mentioned there, this is the first game between the top three in a in, in a cup final since 2007. I was pretty surprised to see that our Arsenal fan producer actually wrote that in the script because that's an admission from him on his part that Arsenal are no longer one of the big boys. But um, but but that in itself, I think, is, is going to play into this being a, a, a big event where the, you know, the gap between these two sides is far slighter than what we normally see between the favourite and the outsider in a cup final. And, and I don't think there's much between these two going into this game and what's going to be uh, whoever wins over 90 minutes or 120 minutes. Knockout football is, is very, very different, uh, as Carlo Ancelotti will tell you, um, than, than, than kind of the, the domestic league stuff. Now, Liverpool were in red-hot form, Steve, but of course the way City and Liverpool are at the moment, even if they draw one game, it feels like a little bit of a wobble because the consistency and the amount of games that they win is, is absolutely unbelievable. Spurs last weekend... Did a job, went to Anfield, did a job on them really. A little bit unlucky not not to win. They kind of made Liverpool look a little bit one-dimensional at times. George has mentioned now Fabinho out, critical player for them in, in midfield. At times they did look a little bit desperate against Spurs, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they've played a lot of ga- games of football this season. They are allowed to have a dip now and then. I suppose the most worrying would be Mo Salah has, has had a little bit of a wobble towards the, the end of the season with two goals in his, in his last 13 mm. games. One shot on target in his last six. His XG is averaging 0.2 over the games. You know, he's played 100 games over the last couple of seasons. On the flip side, I suppose, Mane is still, you know, coming to the party very much. He's had a shot on target in, in, in each of his last five, eight, eight goals in his in his last 10 starts. I just think it's 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 natural, you know, for a team to do that. Admittedly, it's it, it's towards the, you know, the the crunch part of the, of, of the season, but it, it's very much an advantage Manchester City now in that, you know, in the title race and from a, a quadruple point of view, you know, clearly we're quite relieved about that as well, but uh, I think it'd be folly to write off Liverpool just yet. And George, Tuchel's position, is it not as secure as perhaps we would have thought a couple of months ago? Should he get a free pass for the fact that he hasn't really found the balance of, of his front three? I think most managers, if they had a £100 million striker and they didn't make them work, there would probably be questions asked of them. Yeah, I don't think he should get a free pass at all. Um, you know, I'm not here to criticise him either because obviously he's, you know, he's certainly a very good manager and I'm not sure there are that many that Chelsea could bring in who'd be better than him. Um, interesting to note, you know, all the, the narrative around Romelu Lukaku this season has been that he doesn't fit into Tuchel's system and the rest of it. But we saw a couple of weeks ago, it was reported that Tuchel was very, very much on board with the signing when it was made and, and was was part of the player ID itself and, and was pretty confident that he'd be able to, to use Lukaku in his system before the season started. So I don't think we can absolve Tuchel of any blame for the way that the Lukaku transfer hasn't worked. Although, obviously, in recent weeks, it's starting to look a little bit better. But I think that's too small a sample size to, to concentrate too much. And then... Uh, the, you know, Tuchel has also benefited from the fact that a league's campaign is very long and people, I think, have maybe forgotten that Chelsea were absolutely seen, maybe not on this podcast, I must say, because we were talking about Liverpool pre-season, but certainly in the betting markets and the general consensus in the country, Chelsea were, were the new Champions League winners, had been imperious under Tuchel and were, were seen as being the team who would challenge Manchester City for the title. Um, I called them for the league, if I'm being perfectly honest. There we go. Um, you know, uh, that hasn't happened at all. Um, they, they've they've quite clearly been the third best team and a different result for Arsenal last night could have seen them, you know, be in danger of becoming the fourth best team in, in, the, in the league this season. So I don't think you can absolve them of blame. In, in terms of his position, 
with the new ownership at Chelsea, we have absolutely no idea what's going on. You know, we, we don't know if their intention is to entrust Thomas Tuchel with a new six-year deal. We don't know if they want to bring in their own man. We don't know what the ambitions are. We have no idea how they're going to be run as a football club. So uh, we, we could only make educated guesses. It would seem like a big own goal um, to part company with Tuchel because of his popularity with the fan base. I think it's quite rare to have a manager who retains such support when... You know the the two things they're going to have to show for this season have been a cup final in the Carabao Cup, and they hope, um, you know, one that they can win here in the FA Cup. Um, but I think Chelsea fans saw over two legs against Real Madrid that they were very unfortunate to go out, uh, and they've been mitigated mitigating circumstances as well in the league, especially with injuries too. So I think he'll, you know, on merit, his job is probably okay. Um, I, I think they've certainly underachieved in the league, but it all depends on on, on Todd Bowley and, and how these uh, how the new consortium, how the new owners are going to look to run the club going forward. I think there'll be a, a double figure price next year, and as we know, he hasn't got much of a filter. Tuchel, he will just say how it is, and mm. he, and and that brings confrontation. And when you're winning football matches, that's fine. You 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 stop winning football matches, and and you still bring that confrontation. I think you're banging trouble in the dressing room. It wouldn't uh, clearly the takeover is a big part of this, but it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if Tuchel wasn't there next season personally. Well, Lukaku's like some confrontation as well this season, but he has got three goals in his last two. Steve, is he part of Chelsea's future now, or is this just a I don't know an anomaly? Yeah, I mean, I'd quite like to face that uh, that Leeds defence. They'd probably like to face you as well, yeah, Steve. Well, exactly, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly that. Fair point, Dan. Depends how much money they can get for him. If they can get rid of him for decent money in the summer, then I, I can also see Lukaku going. It's been a season of frustrating for one player that was favourite for, uh, for the Golden Boot at the start of the season. Yep, that's the player I called for the Golden Boot as well. Absolute Nostradamus at the start of the season. I was. Uh, man of the match market, Steve. Love it. Exciting market love, for the FA Cup. Love this final. market. I liked, I liked mm. this. Have we got an opinion on it, guys, first of all? Do do we have an opinion? It's it's one... I, I mean, I said to you, man of the match market, and you... I told you Jordan Henderson would be my shout, yeah. Yeah, it's... Historically, he tends to be the player, you know, obviously, that... Um, finds himself on the score sheet. So if you look at last season's FA Cup final, Tillemans got the winning goal. He was awarded man of the match. Season before, Aubameyang, he got two goals as Arsenal 1-2-1. KDB the season before that. Sanchez, so um, in 2017 was Sanchez, who he got one or two goals. He got one goal in that. And the only player of the last five seasons to, to book the trend of those sort of players is actually playing in this game as well. Rudiger, who actually won it in 2018 against Manchester United when Chelsea won 1-0. For, he actually won it. I read up he had eight clearances during the game. So he's actually 33-1 to one to win it this year, Rudiger. So, <laughs> um, which would be a great send-off for him, I suppose. But you won't be surprised that the names at the top of the market, uh, Diaz and Mo Salah are both 6-1 to one with Sadio Mane at 7. I suppose on current form, maybe Mane should be favourite, but... Team news again will be interesting with Jota at nine. I think George was very quick to come up with Thiago. Um, fortunately, we didn't release the yeah. prices. Mm. We were 16. I thought, yeah, I better nip that into 12. Now George fancies it. Uh, <laughs> the, the same price as, Ma- um, as Mason Mount, Van Dijk at 12. And then there's Havertz and Pulisic at 14 and 16. So that's where we're at with the market. It tends to be a match winner. I think with Thiago, I mean, I'll give a bit of reasoning for it as well. He, he's He's... Clearly, like the 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 darling of, of English football at the moment, and rightly so because of the way that he's playing. And and I, I feel like with these kind of markets, you basically want to go after the players where the bar is lowest for them to win. If that makes sense, it feels like with Thiago, all it needs is a Liverpool win, and him probably playing one pass that we know he's capable of, which will be shown over, over and over again, and that will be enough given off the back of his season so far to win it. And that's why I also think, and I'd probably be less keen on this, but if you wanted to back a Chelsea player, I think Lukaku at 12-1 to 1 is a massive price because, again, the bar is so low for him to win because of the disappointing season he's had, because of all the talk about how he's leaving and the rest of it. If he were to score an FA Cup winning goal... That would be enough because it, it's all about the story of how he's, you know, come full circle after that incredible first display that he had, falling out with the manager, falling out of the team, coming back into the side, scoring three goals in the league, coming to Embley and then scoring a goal in the FA Cup final. It feels to me like him, if it was a one-all draw and it was Lukaku and Diaz scored the two goals, I'd make Lukaku the, the favourite without having even seen the game to win, to win the award. So... um I think there might be a, you know, you say that it often goes to goal scorers. No matter what you think of Lukaku, given his goals, you think he's probably going to start here and he's probably got to be the likeliest Chelsea player to score as well. I'm going to stick to my guns with Jordan Henderson. 
you can take a take a horse to water. <laughs> well, I'd love I'd love Henderson to have a great game. Now, there's only I mean, clearly it's generally the winning side that's uh, from a player a player from the winning side that tends to win it. I think Wayne Rooney in 2005, he was another one that booked uh, that's that that trend when uh, Arsenal won 5-4 on penalties as, you, as the producer will be well aware of I was actually at that game as well so um, yeah I think Wayne Rooney was outstanding in that game but was on the losing side Sounds like we all fancy Liverpool from, from our predictions George what is your tip for the cup final? You weren't listening to me at the beginning when I said this was going to be closer than the, uh, than the than the I mean it's not my tip but I think if I had to back either team to win the trophy at 6-4 or 2-1 I'd be back in Chelsea at 6-4 for sure um, although I, I mean I do agree that Liverpool are the, are the likelier winners um, my tip I've done a, a little bet builder I've looked at a, a couple of kind of niche markets um, for the FA Cup final there's a surprise and, George from you yeah I know firstly player passes so I, I think the overs um, for uh, Jorginho are over 53.5 um, looks a bit low especially given Liverpool are, are, are favourites to win the game and therefore dame, game state would dictate that they will likely be ahead uh, for periods and this isn't a league game if they are ahead I think we can expect Liverpool to drop off much more than they normally would which would enable Jorginho to get on the ball a lot more uh, Kovacic's injury means that he's less likely to go off which is often an issue when looking at Jorginho and his recent stats you know in the last game against Leeds he played 90 minutes and, and made 100 passes in 46 minutes it's against Everton it was 50 uh, you're looking at teams who have more of the ball against Real Madrid in 64 minutes he made 78 uh, even at the Bernabeu coming on for the last 15 he made 18 you know he's a player who when he's playing normally averages about a pass a minute um, and I don't expect him to hit those heights against the high pressing Liverpool but I, I think to have him and nearly half of that is is a little bit low and then combining that with under 8.5 shots on target in the game I, I think that part of the price here part of the line the Carabao Cup final has built into it I think this is likely to be a little bit more cagey I think there's more on the line the the FA Cup is clearly a bigger prize and a bigger scalp than the Carabao Cup and generally cup finals are are pretty cagey affairs Um, and and I think we can maybe kind of just take advantage of the the high line there with with most people probably looking to buy uh, in the market as well so under 8.5 shots on target and over 53.5 Jorginho passes as a double is three to one and that's the way I'm playing it. Thank you very much, George. The longest tip I think we've ever had at the, at the end of it. Well, you've got, you got to explain segment. those ones, haven't you? You can't, you can't <laughs> just say, just say that and then not give any reasoning for it. So. I know. Very unlike George to have twenty-five sentences about something that could just be there in thirty seconds. Come on. <laughs> I think, I think, I think you're mistaking me with Ali Maxwell there, Steve. So. <laughs> <laughs> two great, two great guys in my book. Two great guys. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Let's head to our bread and butter. Then the Premier League game two we're going to look at today, Spurs v Burnley, which is a midday kickoff on Sunday. Now, we're going to talk about Arsenal when we come to preview their match later on in the show, but what a performance and a result it was for Spurs on Thursday night. Are the odds now with them, Steve? We can't split them in the top four market now. Five to six each of two was five to two last night before the game. Arsenal were two to seven. So now it's a coin toss. I watched the game last night. I was, as somebody who has backed Arsenal for the top four, George and myself are certainly in that camp. I was uh, I was very disappointed with a whole host of things last night, particularly people being very critical of the officials, which drives me absolutely mad, but I'm sure we'll come on to that later. Of course, Arsenal are still in front with a point in front, and it's uh, if they win both games that you know they are going to finish in the top four and some champion Champions League football for the first time in what is it five years, maybe mm. a bit longer than that. So just when you think that Arsenal are going to do it, they shoot themselves in the foot. Spurs were excellent. Uh, the criticism of the uh, of the uh, of the referee aside, I thought Spurs were bang at it, and and um, Conte gave Arteta a massive lesson. Yeah, George, this is right up your alley here. Raised in the EFL, Ryan Sessegnon did a fantastic <laughs> job shackling Saka last night. It's the second great performance from him this week because he kept Mo Salah pretty quiet as well last weekend. This is what Conte does, isn't he? Although I will say. Ryan Sessegnon exploded onto the scene in the EFL, an explosive finisher more as a forward player. But Conte's obviously seen something in him because more often than not when he's been fit, he's played. 
yeah, I, I'm going to surprise you here. Well, I didn't... Well, it's not a case of not rating him. Um, I thought Sessegnon was a massive hype horse in, in the EFL. When he won the Championship Player of the Season... It was one of the biggest travesties in the history of individual player awards. And that list is long. Uh, Ruben Neves came second. And Ruben Neves was the best player, not just that season in the championship, but arguably that the championship has ever seen in, in that season. And, and, he, and he lost the, out on the award. You know, to a, a 17-year-old kid who had this incredible knack of finding himself in space in the box and had absolute ice in his veins to finish those moves off. Um, so... What I'm getting at here is that Antonio Conte is a master because even though Sessegnon kind of did burst on the scene, he was seen as a left wing back at the time. As you mentioned, his best performances for Fulham were playing kind of left of a three, almost as a, he was like an inside forward, basically. Mm. Um, You know, he was never uh, the kind of wing back or the kind of winger. I remember the most lazy comparisons being made to Gareth Bale when he came through. Total chalk and cheese in terms of players. Sessegnon isn't someone who's going to stand up a player and, and, and use a kind of, burst of pace to get past him. He's not someone who's going to use his speed to um, to kind of run onto loose balls. He's a very, very clever footballer with, with good technical ability and good tenacity as well, which can often boil over into um, into cards and red cards and the like as well. But for, for Antonio Conte to come in and take a player whose confidence, understandably, has been massively hit, given he was such a, sh- a shining star early in his career and the move to Spurs clearly hadn't worked out initially you know he's brought in to play under Pochettino which never happened um the you know the the managerial issues at, at Spurs have been well publicized since then and Conte has come in spotted a player who's still incredibly young and is molding him into the perfect Conte wing back in such a short space of time I mean, the, the appointment of Conte to, to Tottenham is going to be revolutionary for, for Sessegnon's career because I'm pretty convinced that if it wasn't a manager who had such a good history as, as well of moulding these players, you know, you think back to to him turning up at Chelsea and plucking Victor Moses from from obscurity and, and turning him into the best right wing back in the league for for 12 months. Um, you know, Sessegnon is, is trending now very much in the right direction. He's starting to look like the player who... Um, who I think a lot of people hoped that he would be, even if they didn't necessarily understand what he was. And what we also know about Conte's wing-backs is that they they, they often are given the, the licence to get forward and score goals as well. And I've got no doubt that, that Steve will be having uh, Ryan Sessegnon in his bet slip in the goal-scoring markets um, plenty in the coming uh, weeks and months as well. But I'm delighted to see him doing well. It was never a case necessarily of, of not rating him. It was just the narrative around Sessegnon, all the talk about him, seemed to come from people that hadn't really watched him play before. Um, and I'm delighted now that maybe kind of under the radar, um, he's starting to progress in a way that suggests that he could be a massive player for Spurs going forward. Now, I can almost taste the tears for these next two points that I'm about to read out. You can tell an Arsenal fan has, has written this script this morning or last night, straight after the game, whenever he wrote it. Contact after the game, he said, Arteta... He complains a lot. He needs to be more focused on his team and not complain because he's just started this work. So talking about him being a, a rookie manager, basically. It says here, Steve, is that a bit rich, Conte talking about complaining? I also saw that this morning about six o'clock, Dan, and I'm <laughs> chuckling away at myself thinking, oh dear, oh dear, someone must have been a very frustrated boy last night. <laughs> the next one's even worse. Conte <laughs> certainly wasn't a frustrated boy. I can just imagine him sitting back, maybe, I don't know what he does, have a, have a smoke, have a glass of wine, have a drink of water, whatever, being a very content manager after... Yes, I mean, we've seen his antics at Burnley Conte and we all, some of us thought, you know, what the bloody hell is he doing there type of thing. And clearly the adrenaline is, is, is pumping after a game. You've been interviewed in such a, a big game like, you know, like this. It's and, and, and managers get frustrated and maybe if they sat back just a little bit, probably wouldn't say things that they normally would like half an hour, an hour later. But Conte and Spurs were frustrated that this was called off in the first place. They've been waiting, you know, to get this game back on. They were very, clearly very pleased last night with the results as well. Extremely content. They're now head and head in the race for the top four. And this is a manager, Conte, that's won a lot of, you know, he's won the Premier League, he's won FA Cups, you know, he's won things around Europe. So um, he's just probably showing just, you know, who's the boss. And he certainly bossed him um, on Thursday night on the, uh, on the Spurs pitch. Yeah, I, I just don't think there's anything for him to really complain about. You know, having been on this podcast last week and slating the referee uh, in the in the game between City and Real Madrid. I mean, this was a case of the referee 
applying the laws of the game with effect. You know, the, the penalty was clearly a penalty. It, it doesn't matter that you see it the whole time. It doesn't matter that sometimes you players getting away with it. He's made Cedric has made no attempt to play the ball. He's quite clearly pushed the player in Son, who's jumping, probably with a chance of getting a header on target. It's it's a it's a, a clear penalty whether you like it or not. It, it might be soft, but that doesn't matter. That's not that's not an argument against it being given. I think that maybe the softer of the two is the um, is the second yellow, where uh, holding is just not helped. Been a, a been a straight red. I did when I watched it back. No, I was just right. a big controversial decision. No, holding was actually all game. I don't. I cannot believe people are moaning about that red card. I am not saying that it is not a red card. I'm saying of the two, that is probably the one where you can see somewhat where, you know, is are you basically encouraging players just to run into other defenders and go down? But, I mean, Holding's making no attempt to, to, to play the ball. He's not running back to get in position. He's facing someone. He does it. It's 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 pretty cynical and it is it is a second yellow. But I, I think the key point to be made here isn't about the referee. It's it's that you always have to remember with these, with these interviews because Arteta's interview... It's, I mean, it's a pretty ridiculous watch. You know, I think it was Jeff Shreves interviewing him. Um, I felt a bit sorry for, although he kept going in with the same question, um, where Arteta just kept saying, you know, if I say what I think about the referee, I'm going to get a six-month ban. And I think in these occasions, sometimes you just have to remember that a manager's interview isn't necessarily for you, okay? We're sitting at home on the sofa or in the pub listening to that, and we're wondering, what is he talking about? It's probably either for A, the fans, Arsenal fans. So when you've got people like Adonis who are livid with the referee sitting at home, they're watching that being like, yes, my manager sticking up for all of us. Or it's for the players. And it's the manager coming out, putting the heat on the referee, trying to take the heat off his players and getting three guys who've never played the game sitting on a podcast at 8.30 the next morning talking about the referee rather than the fact they got beat 3-0. You know, so it, it might just be... Arteta being a little bit clever, thinking I'm, I'm going to pander here to my fans, I'm going to take the heat off the players and I'm going to complain about the referee, even when he probably knows that actually, realistically, it had little to do with it. Um, that's my take on things anyway. It's it's not clever though, George, is it? I mean, this this culture of blaming of officials now is just spiralling. Well, I've got to be careful because I did it last uh, week. So. I know, <laughs> it's, spir- it's spiralling out of control. I was happy on with John Moss, I must say. I know, but it, it, it comes from the top and, and, and feeds all the way down. And, I don't know where it's going to end. Honestly, I'm I'm really concerned about where where this tribalism is 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 heading. I've got. I mean, we've covered it, but I've got to read the question here. I've got to read the question now that the Arsenal producer put in this script. Jack Pickbrook <laughs> called Kane son savvy in his post game assessment on the Athletic. That's just polite for cheating, isn't it? A bad week for Premier oh League. <laughs> but that's where we're. At, but, but, but that's where we're. That's where we're at. We players. They're, they're, they're pushing the. They're pushing the boundaries and trying to get the, you know, the officials to make these errors, aren't they? From throw-ins and it. Oh my God, it's that. But we're also, ridiculous. you know, we as fans, we are, and I know this will get me a lot of heat, but as fans, are you all want your players to do whatever is pushing the boundaries as much as possible to win. You know, and I personally think even with, you know, VAR's got rid of it, but back in the day, and and a well-executed dive, even though it's against the laws of the game and the rest of it, part of me is like, you kind of deserve to be applauded there because you've managed to literally find a way to win. And, uh, you know, and then rightfully, if you get found out, like in anything, you, if you get called out on it and you get caught, you get punished. Um, you know, being savvy is is part of the game. And, you know, Arsenal's... Great team under Arsene Wenger was built on being incredibly savvy. You know, in Robert Perez and Freddie Ljungberg, you had and Thierry Henry, you had three of the savviest players, I think, going. Uh, and the amount of points and marginal gains that can win you is, is incredibly important. So, you know, savvy is, yeah, maybe, maybe savvy is cheating when it's going against you and it's clever when it's going for you. Three of us probably won't be back on this podcast next week or ever again. <laughs> way we've just gone through, gone through the script. I didn't realise that Donis had, had that much power. Am I pulling the sponsorship all of a sudden? <laughs> I don't know who's in charge, Dave. <laughs> this is more like it in the script. Burnley being pretty comprehensively by Villa last weekend. George, is that, I mean, they've been on a great run. So they're, they're probably never going to win four games in a row. They've done well to, to take seven points from nine or take nine points, whatever they'd done. They could quite feasibly now not win another game, but still stay up, I would say. Yeah, they definitely could do um, because of the, the state at, at Leeds at the moment uh, with Burnley boasting a much better goal difference. Uh, I must say when 
Mike Jackson was sacked from Tranmere um, about eight months ago. Um, if you had told me that he was going to end April being Premier League Manager of the Month, I'd have been pretty pretty surprised. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming what, at all. What odds would um, we have got on that, Steve? Whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I was foolish enough to back. I, I backed uh, Bernie Jorno Bet in that Villa game, and um, and you know often. You know, it's a bit of variance. It's after a poor run of of, uh, of 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 results. Often it can kind of turn with it with a couple of wins back to back. And and I think because of uh, what Everton have done, Burnley fans probably thought they were in the clear. Um, but it's not the case now. Leeds obviously in a bit of a desperate situation. But but Dan, what did you make of Burnley? Did did you think that they looked um, like a, a team who had won their previous three games, or was there a lack of quality and a lack of belief in the side? I actually think Villa just played well. Not often, not often to say that, but I, I did think Villa just had a Villa just had a good game. One of those games where we had a good game plan. Chambers playing defensive midfield to, to firm it up a bit, and it allowed the attacking players to play and got an early goal. If you get an early goal and, and go one nil up, you, you've got a good chance of winning the game, haven't you? Villa are very good when they go ahead, very poor when they go behind. Does Burnley looked a little bit tired, perhaps? Injuries starting to catch up with them as well. They lost Tarkovsky at half time. They haven't had Ben Mee for a while now. Jay Rodriguez isn't there, so. They've lost a lot of players recently. I just think they looked a bit tired, perhaps, Steve. I mean, Tarkovsky and, and me, just the mainstay of that Premier League rearguard, aren't they? Nathan Collins is a player that I've watched. Good player. Yeah, I've watched a lot up here in, in, in Stoke and he's he's very much a threat in, in, in both boxes. So I'm pleased to see him doing well. J-Rod still has a lot to offer. Clearly, he loves the club. I bumped into his family in uh, Coruña when uh, Albion were out there in a friendly and uh, we had a good few uh, a good few beers uh, with those guys, um, and I really like another player who I like to see. Well, a good guy, Jay Rod. He's got a bit of a hamstring issue at the moment, so I, I don't know whether he'll be back before the end of the season. But he could be key in that. And uh, another key player who I think has been revitalised under Mike Jackson is Dwight, Dwight McNeil, who's um, yeah, he has. he has. He's had eleven shots in the last four games. You know, seems to have got a little bit of hunger back. I don't know what happened under under him and, and and Sean Dyche, but it's good to see him back in form, and he could be key for them going forward in these in these final couple of games to stay in the Premier League. Yeah, Cornet obviously came on against Villa and scored late as well. I think he's going to have a say in whether they stay up or not if they do need to get points in any of their games. Jerry Barton has been mentioned as a potential candidate for the full time job at Burnley. George, what do you make of that? Obviously, he's had a great week with Bristol Rovers. Well, great a great few weeks with Bristol Rovers, really. <laughs> great couple of months of Bristol Rovers. Yeah. Um, I think it's really interesting. Uh, you know, he's someone who obviously knows the club. I think he's Bookie's favourite um, with uh, Vincent Company, um, the the early favourite. Seemingly Burnley just intent on on hiring former City players. Um, but you know, Bart Barton is someone who. Um, has played for the club. Uh, you, you don't often get a manager who's kind of been been sat from a League One job, um, suddenly being touted for Premier League jobs. But obviously, given his profile, it makes a bit more sense. And I think he is a really interesting managerial prospect. Where you know, for, for there are a lot of things about Jerry Barton off the pitch that we could talk about. There are some certain things at the moment that we can't talk about. But you know, anyone will know what those are. But focusing on the football side of things. He took a Fleetwood side to a playoff semi-final a couple of seasons ago, which in itself is a pretty incredible achievement. When you look at um, where Fleetwood's kind of rightful place in terms of, of budget is in the EFL, um, they're a team who, since he left, have, have kind of plummeted a little bit. Uh, they look to be hiring Scott Brown as their next manager, uh, which could be fairly lively, you'd think. Um, and then he went to Bristol Rovers, where things started off very, very poorly. Uh, he was, re- you know, he, it wasn't his fault, but he oversaw the relegation last season. They started this season very badly. A lot of Bristol Rovers fans very unhappy. And then from about November onwards, December onwards, they were the best, one of the best, if not the best team in, in League Two, and, and, fought, and went up on final day with a seven-nil win, needing a seven-nil win against Scunthorpe. And you know, he was carried aloft around the Memorial Ground on on Bristol Rovers fans' shoulders. He, he, there's something about him that there's no there's no doubt about that. He's not a, a an ex-pro who is getting jobs off the back of of being, um, you know, of his name. I, I think in both a Fleetwood job and a Bristol Rovers job. We've seen patches of form that suggest that he is very, very adept at getting teams very hard to beat with massive confidence in themselves and getting young players to play very well as well. Uh, uh, Yeah, I'm going to go against the grain and say this would be a good appointment, I think. I I think because he's someone who has Premier League experience as a player and has a relationship with the club as well, um, 
I think that he will be someone who would come in and he'll certainly ruffle a few feathers. But given time, I think there is a, a manager in there. Former England international as well, wasn't he, Joe Barr? I think he got one cap, potentially. Yeah, so former England international as well. One more Stay than you, tip. Yeah, one more than yeah, you. one more than me. He <laughs> is one more than me. Stay, watch your tip for this one. 1974, the last time Burnley won a league game at Spurs. I know Burnley are playing a little bit different under Jackson, uh, less longer balls there. They had a rise in their XG. Their XG against has also come down as well. But I still, I still think Spurs this one. And like George, I'm going to go towards a bet builder, which is Harry Kane to score, Son to score, and Spurs to win. Pretty simple. Currently around the eleven to four mark. Thank you very much, Steve. Game three we're going to look at is West Ham against Manchester City, which is the two p.m. kickoff on Sunday. Steve, it feels like everyone's waiting to say. Well, waiting for a banana skin for Manchester City. Is this the one? I actually think it could be, just on the basis that they're out of Europe now. I think the fans will go there pumped, want to upset Man City. The fans want to have a say in the title race. When I was at Villa Park on Tuesday, I've got nothing against Liverpool at all, but it felt like you very much want to spoil the party when it's happening in your patch. And I feel like it could be the same with West Ham fans. that They'll want to spoil it for Manchester City. Yeah, I get that. Listen, Manchester City are now 1-20 to for the title, so they're extremely short. Uh, there was a little bit of money for Wolves in midweek as well. I mean, they were a big price, like 12-1 to to win the game. I think they were into like 9-1 to on the off, but we know, clearly we know what happened there. West Ham are, are a shorter price, and they managed to get uh, a draw Last season, was it against against Manchester City at home? I mean, the previous four games, they had conceded 17 on their home turf against against the Citizens. You know, West Ham are in a, a little bit better form, I suppose, the, hand, the hangover from Europe. Um, it's a good time, wasn't it, for them to play? Was it Norwich last week that they played? So, mm. I mean, yeah. But um, I think well, from a Manchester City point of view, a banana skin, possibly the injuries defensively will be a slight concern for me. The, 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 the Laporte injury on the back of Diaz, Stones, Walker as well. Ake as you rightly point out, well, Dan, yeah, West Ham fans will be well and truly up for this game. I guess the issue now, George, is that goal difference. They really pumped it up against Wolves, and that kind of means now they can afford a defeat, potentially. Yeah, it does. I don't think they'll be looking at it that way, though. Um, I was part of the camp. Um, you know, In this game, you've got to put your hands up when you get things wrong. And I thought maybe they would struggle to bounce back after the, mm, um, after the Champions League heartbreak. And they put in two of the most clinically dominant displays um, off the back of that. And it feels to me like it's going the other way. Um, they are just reveling in the fact that there's, you know, there's no pressure really. That winning the Premier League title for Manchester City is nothing new. Um, winning the title in front of their fans is nothing new. Um, and they seem to just be relaxing into the role of champions now. Um, I just don't see any reason why they won't continue to steamroll the teams in front of them. And I think for West Ham, there's probably more of a hangover because they are out of Europe having felt like they shouldn't be, but there's little for them to play for. Having gone up through most of the season, hoping they'd be able to crash the top four or, or the top six, it, it kind of feels like everything is unravelling. And um, and they they are another team, especially with their injury issues, who who kind of need the, the line to come as, as soon as possible. Um, so I, I know what you're saying in terms of, of the fans will, will be wanting to, to cause an upset. Um City's record at West Ham over the last, well, at the, at the London Stadium is pretty good. Um, and I think it's it's quite difficult to make the London Stadium into a an awkward place for away teams to go because as much as the West Ham fans can try and build an atmosphere, you are that far away from the pitch and it's it's not a particularly intimidating place to go. And for Manchester City, it's, it's quite a nice place to go and play their way as well. So, um, yeah, I'd be surprised if uh, West Ham put up too much of a fight but then I thought the Newcastle would, would give them a decent game at the uh, mm. uh, at the Etihad and that wasn't to be was it no I mean Man City were obviously upset by the Champions League exit because they went out and bought Haaland there been plenty of content on The Athletic this week both written and in podcast form there was one on this feed earlier on in the week with Sam Lay the Manchester City writer and various other people from The Athletic where we went over that signing so if you haven't listened to that yet do go back and check it out what do you two make of the Holland signing? I'll come to you first, Dave. I'm excited as a neutral to see, you know, that he's just a, a beast of a player who scores, to, seems to score a truckload of goals whenever I, whenever I see him. Uh, we, we are alike that we 
both probably eat 4,000 calories a day, but then the similarities stop there. <laughs> so I, I, I did read that in The Athletic and had a, had a, little, uh, a little chuckle. We, of course, got some goals markets on his Premier League goal tally um, next season. And you won't be surprised that the overs has been uh, already nibbled at quite a bit. I know we touched on this last week. Have we any further thoughts, guys, on his goal tally next season in the Premier League? I think it's basically the most volatile market and in terms of goals I've ever thought of because you've got a guy who could feasibly score absolute shed loads uh, if he if he kind of settles in immediately but then you've also got the fact that he's had some pretty bad injury problems injuries already already in his career uh, and he's a young player you know he's had three separate injury issues this season for for Dortmund and missed kind of chunks of games for that reason and then you've also got the pep factor where it's very very rare that someone comes in to Manchester City and performs at the top level straight away and it does feel like with Haaland and City given they've they're going to go from basically playing without a striker to playing with the most center forward striker possible um who you know there's no arguing where 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 Haaland is is best fitted you know this isn't a player that suddenly Pep can start playing I mean I, I wouldn't put it past him but start playing out wide on the left you know he is going to be playing through the middle and being the, the focal point for their attacks I do wonder if there could be teething problems where where it's gonna, it's not just going to be Pep getting a player to adapt his game to fit Pep's system but it's also probably going to have to be Pep's system adapting to an extent as well to to account for a, a different type of striker so in my mind he could score anywhere between probably have a Lukaku season score seven or eight to scoring 40 like it, it, it's I, I have no idea it's a market get them that splinters I would not out George good grief man no, get I them mean... splinters <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Dan's got a view come I mean, on Dan if I, if come I had, on give me a view if Dan I, if I had me. to have a bet if I had to have a bet I, I'd probably bat the 26 to 30 11 to 4 okay yeah I think if he plays over 30 games yeah, that's the thing like George is the injuries if you knew how many games he was going to play it'd be a lot easier to call this but I think if he plays around 30 games let's say I think he'd get 25 goals. Given that you've got 25 or fewer at two to five, that would have kind of a spread line at what, probably 27 and a half to sell, 27 to sell. I'd, 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 I'd sell that probably. If it feels that there's more upside low. I mean, yeah. I, I'm surprised looking at your market, how short that is. Because I thought that it would be higher because, you know, obviously all the Don't tell him these him things because he changes them. I'll go yeah, back. Well, that, no, I don't. Uh, that's, why I I don't my, do. that's why I sent my invoice, Matt Teresa's five, football trader. You know, yeah. Hasn't been it, paid yet. Well, really. it, well, it's 14 to 1, 35 goals or more and 3 to 1 to be top goal scorer. I just go back to Lionel Messi um, at the start of the season when he joined PSG. And we were giving out these just like ridiculous odds. The, the, the goal line was very high and we were... We were I put out two to one for 29 goals or less in the league this season. I think he's got four goals this season. So we can, we can get it incredibly wrong. And of course, with you know, Manchester City in the Champions League next season, um, that they will be around the five to two favourites for that as well. So they're falling short again this season. So they go again next season. De Bruyne the other night, Steve. Could have quite feasibly scored two hat-tricks in that game against Wolves. It's just it's just the way that he does it. Either side, just that that left foot. You thinking is he left footed or is he right footed? I, 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 you watch him; he's an absolute breath of fresh air. And of course, he's coming strong for that PFA award just at the end, um, like he did last season. You know, winning it twice on the bounce. He's going for it for the third time on the bounce as well. That's that's never happened as well as a as a neutral. Okay, it was against Wolves. I was absolutely loving his performance, to be honest. I was disappointed he didn't get another one towards the end. But yeah, he's he's breathing down Mo Salah's neck now and it's very close um, as we head towards the PFA Awards. Yeah, I'm talking PFA Awards, actually. I actually think Declan Ross should probably be in contention. I think he's had an unbelievable season for West Ham. George, there's reports that he's being offered an eight-year contract. I mean, my only experience of this kind of thing is in Football Manager and you can't offer more than five. Is an eight-year contract a thing? Alan Pardew. Oh yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, as a manager, but as a player, an eight-year contract. It's still, it's always the one that's still got like five years to run, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then he came the Albion. Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> it seems like a, a a pretty good way to protect your asset if you can if you can swing it. I mean, I don't know. I think I feel like for West Ham, at some point, they have to just try and get as much money for him as possible and bring in the right people to spend that money as wisely as possible because there comes a stage when you're a team like West Ham and you're trying to bridge the gap between um, being a 6th, 7th place side to trying to mix it with with the very top of the league 
where player trading is the most important thing. And you've got to be able to back yourself. If you're going to get £150 million for a set midfielder, you've got to back yourself to go out there and spend that on five or six players who are going to be of the requisite quality to then, in two or three years' time, themselves be touted to move on. And that's what Liverpool did incredibly well, is back themselves in the transfer market. And this is, and it's a frustration for me in the whole of the Premier League where clubs seem to forget when they've got money that there, there is still value to be had at a lower price point. Like you never see Manchester United going after, except for Dan James, you never see Manchester United going after players in that kind of 5 million to 25 million price bracket where that's generally where the value lies because you're, you're getting players who eventually in two or three years' time might be worth the amount that you're, you know, that you're willing to pay at the top end. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's exceptionally good and it feels like he's taken another massive step forward this season off the back of what was an incredible summer for him last season for England. And maybe tying him down to an eight-year deal is in itself a means of West Ham ensuring that they do, whether it's next summer or the summer after, get a proper fee for him because there's going to be no issues in terms of of that contract running down. Um, But for Rice himself at some point, and obviously, you know, he he has a massive loyalty towards the club. Um, He's still much younger than I think people often often think because he's been around for so long. And he speaks like a seasoned pro. And he plays like one as well. You know, he's, he's such a... You know, for for a 23 year old who's not turning 24 until January, I mean, there's still a lot to come from Declan Rice in the next 10 years. Um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm intrigued to see where he goes, and you know, and the Athletic linked him to City um, back in in October as well. Yeah, West Ham to still be challenging for the top six. They're 130 to finish in the top six with United um, strong favourites at one to five. George touched on it there, but West Ham need new blood, new recruits into that football club. If they don't. I can see David Moyes being a little bit frustrated. For what he's done, he's brilliant. It, 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 needs, it definitely needs new blood there. Yeah, I think he'd feel that he's earned a high transfer Very budget much so. to, to do some business Very with the work so. he's done. Yeah, two great seasons for West Ham. Keen Lewis George, Potter, rumoured to be going there. Ooh. He'd be a good signing from Hull, following his old, his, his old mentor, Jared Bowen. And that's what you say about value in the transfer market, you know, West Ham could pluck another one like they did with Bowen. What's your tip for this one then, West Ham City, George? I think City will win this comfortably, I have to say. Um, and, and I think we're seeing them hitting their, you know, hitting their straps at the right time. Um, we've seen them blitz Newcastle, we've seen them blitz Wolves. And with West Ham having you know, um, little motivation in this one, I can see them doing it again. Uh, and City to win uh, minus two, so winning by two clear goals. So 3-0, 4-1 or anything above that kind of thing is 12-5. to five, And that's where I'm playing it. Last game we're going to look at is Newcastle v Arsenal, the Monday night football 8 o'clock kickoff. Now, there's a good piece in The Athletic by Chris Woff and George Colkin on why Newcastle can't become Manchester City overnight. But could they become more like Arsenal, Steve? What, moaning about refs? Do you think? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think they can. I think if you're looking for a prize for Newcastle to finish in the, in the top four next season, you... you you want a massive price for that to happen. You ain't going to get it, quite simply. They will be a single-figure price to finish in the in the top four. Clearly, Eddie Howe won't be like a kid in the sweet shop this summer. They will have targets, but they will be ones that they've looked into for, for quite a while and, and will be right yeah, for the Yeah, a bit more measured club. than I thought they would be Newcastle, yeah. actually. No, yeah, and that's a credit to them in, in that mm. respect, you would say. I suppose they also need to, need to get players out also to balance the books just a little bit. So, and a player that... Again, talking as a neutral that we absolutely love, he's Saint Maximan. You know, you, you love watching him play, and if he, if you don't watch him every week, you see the highlights reels, and you think, "Oh my God, what a player! How is how is he at Newcastle? You know, all these tricks that he does." Yeah, yeah. Looking through them, he's had one assist since August. He hasn't hasn't scored in the last four months, and he's no longer the biggest now at the football club, is he? I don't think Gamares has come in and and taken that mantle mm. and um and and hit the ground running. So. He's a player. I'll be interested to see where he goes. But I'm pretty sure they will have the targets. But from a betting point of view, are we going to offer any big prices about Newcastle doing well this season? Definitely not. Arsenal, George, we've spoken previously on this podcast about their squad players. Now, it was good to have players coming in and, and doing the business, doing a solid job for them. But then last night against Spurs, it did feel a little bit like a step too far for some of those, obviously holding being one. Yeah, I think it's important not to make too many sweeping judgments off the back of last night. I mean, clearly, um, Arsenal lost 
in terms of holding their nerve. And it felt like there was almost, a, you know, Antonio Conte called for calm from Spurs before the game. They won the game 3-0. They had one booking. Whereas it felt, you know, when Son went down for the second yellow for Rob Holding, that was the fifth time that he was fouled in 30 minutes. It felt like Arteta almost sent Arsenal out to go and disrupt rather than play their own game. And that was a, a massive failure on his part. But there's also no denying that the penalty and the red card completely changed the game. And I think reading too much into their performances, individual performances from Arsenal, the scoreline or anything else, is probably a bit of a mistake. I think this is just a game that was decided by circumstance in itself, you know, individual errors from certain players, either that or or just total mismanagement from Arteta in, in the way that he sent his team out. Um, but, I, you know, I think any any obituaries about players Arsenal careers off the back of last night would be premature and you know Holding has proven himself I think over a longer period of time to be a perfectly capable um, third or fourth choice centre-back which is what he'll be for Arsenal for the next couple of seasons and I'm sure he'll come back and be of use again to them in the future Steve who do you fancy for this one? I mean Arsenal have done very well Dan haven't they set plays but with all the injuries that we've seen and, and suspensions of course as well I think there might be some vulnerability from set plays Dan Byrne isn't I can a see Craig where Dawson that was going straight away. Yeah, see where Dan, Byrne isn't, Dan Byrne isn't the Craig Dawson type who will run through a brick wall for you, but just his sheer height. He has had a few chances recently as well. He's 14 to 1 to score at any time. I was looking at other other players, uh, LaSalle's. I was waiting for team news about Shah. Shah's uh, uh, very short anyway, but yeah, I'm going to go for, for Dan Byrne to score. And I might even play him in some shots markets as well, whether it's to be a shot and have a shot on target. So I think they could take advantage of that, uh, of the Arsenal size on Monday night. We nearly went a whole podcast without you calling the centre half to score in your tips. <laughs> nearly, we nearly got there, but we fell at the final. You got hurdles, your fingers, dude. Dan Byrne, didn't you? That was it. <laughs> <laughs> Just enough time for me to remind you to subscribe to the Athletic today and gain full access to all the brilliant articles and ad-free podcasts for just a pound a month for the first six months by visiting theathletic.com/slash/footballpod. My thanks goes to George and to Steve as always and of course all of you for listening too. Please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our new Ornstein on Monday podcast is available every Monday lunchtime on this feed to Athletic and Apple Plus subscribers only and Mark Chapman and the main pod will be available as per usual from Monday evening. You've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast. Have a great weekend and enjoy all the football. The Athletic.